Okay, I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for drive to work. Okay, well today, um, my, ever, my ongoing quest to try to figure out different topics uh, for the podcast, I've been thinking about different kinds of things that I can talk about. Um, and one of the things I realized is, uh, I've been a wizard a long time, I've been involved in a lot of things, and while I've been a lot, involved in a lot of sets, I'm involved in other aspects of magic. And so today, I'm going to talk about the creation of the Pro Tour, um, of something I was involved in. So one of the things I've realized, by the way, I've been thinking about how my, like, I have a podcast, I have a column, I want to make sure that I'm doing things that fit the medium by which I'm uh, working with, and that I've come to realize that podcasts, I think they shine in storytelling, in sort of recalling things and, you know... Uh, where I think articles do a little better job of being, you know, talking about a very specific thing where I can rewrite and be very exact. Um, so I'm trying to find topics in which I get to tell stories because I think that's what podcasts do best. Um, the reason I picked the Pro Tour is uh, it's one of the things that I was very involved in the creation of um, and that I have a very firsthand, you know, viewpoint of watching it happen. Uh, and so anyway, I think the Pro Tour has become a pretty, you know, a key part of magic. So today... I'm going to talk about the creation of the Pro Tour. And like I, I've talked about it in a couple other podcasts, I feel that one of my roles is I'm one of the historians of the game, and that kind of one of my responsibilities of, of this podcast is, hey, to kind of fill in a bunch of stories for people that might not know, because um, I want, you know, in time for people to sort of know about sort of how magic came to be. So anyway, today I thought I would talk about the Pro Tour. So, to explain the Pro Tour, I need to explain a couple of key things. First, let me talk about my background with organized play. Um, okay, so uh, what led to me being involved in the creation of the Pro Tour? I think the answer would be Magic the Puzzling. Huh? So for those who don't know, I did a puzzle comp. In fact, the very first thing I did for Magic is um, back, I lived in Los Angeles, and uh, the first Duelist came out, and I, I liked it, but I thought it was kind of light on material for more experienced players. So I ended up pitching this idea for a, a puzzle column, kind of like a ch- chess puzzle where the game's in progress and you have to solve it. Um, anyway, they, they accepted it. Uh, it's his own story for another day. But anyway, I started doing a puzzle column in The Duelist. Um, what does this have to do with organized play? I will explain. Um, so what happened was they wanted me, when I did, the puzzles became very popular very quickly. Um, and for quite a while, they were the most popular um, feature in the magazine. And so they wanted my puzzles to be up to date, meaning if this was the article that premiered Ice Age, you know, Ice Age had just come out, they wanted me to have puzzles with Ice Age cards. So because this was a magazine, you know, and we had to work months ahead, that meant in order for me to be able to do puzzles, I needed to see the cards ahead of time because there was no way for me to make puzzles with cards I hadn't seen. And I needed to see all the cards because I needed to be able to get context to build puzzles. Um, and I needed to know what tools I had, because a lot of times when you're building a puzzle, you don't know quite what you need. You have to see what's available. Um, so anyway, I ended up getting advanced knowledge of the sets. Uh, they would send me what we would call godbooks, where they're literally pages. This is before the internet. We would send internet images. So they physically would, in the mail, send me pages that showed all the cards. Um, and so I knew stuff ahead of time. And that was cool. In fact, it's quite exciting. Uh, but one of the downsides was I was not allowed to play in sanctioned tournaments. Um, sanctioned play had started uh, a little before that um, in January of 94 
Uh, they created the DCI, the Dualist Convocation International, if you didn't know what DCI stands for. Um, and they started having sanctioned tournaments. Um, Magic would go on to have a much more robust organized play system. I'll get into that in a second. Um, but there, there was some sanctioning in the early days. Anyway, I wasn't allowed to play in a sanctioned tournament. Uh, where that mostly mattered was the high-profile stuff, uh, regionals and things. I, I couldn't play in that. So since I couldn't play in the tournaments, I started judging. Um, and most people don't know this, but uh, I actually, for a long time, was a level four judge. Um, I did a lot of uh, judge interviews. I was very active early on in the judging scene. Um, and what happened was, when I first got to Wizards, I learned that Scaff Elias was in the process of putting together a pro tour for Magic. Well, let's jump over and talk about Scaff Elias for a second. Now, I brought him up during the Alliances podcast I did, because he's one of what we call the East Coast Playtesters. He was on the team that designed Ice Age and Alliances and Fallen Empires and Antiquities. Um, and Scaff was one of the original playtesters of Magic. Um, he met Richard back in Philadelphia. If I remember correctly, um, Scaff knew Jim Lynn, because they both went to Princeton together, and Jim Lynn had known Richard in Philadelphia, or UPenn, and they, uh, uh, I believe Scaff met... Richard through Jim. I believe that is true. Um, anyway, uh, Scaff and uh, Richard became fast friends, very close friends. In fact, right now they're very, very good friends. Um, and when Richard came out here to start to work at Wizards, Scaff followed very shortly thereafter. Um, and so Scaff quickly became a mainstay. He was in R&D, but Scaff kind of did what Scaff wanted to do. Like I said, he was an executive vice president uh, and kind of in charge of things Scaff wanted to be in charge of. And, I mean, let me explain a couple things about Scaff. A, Scaff is intelligent, like nobody's business. I mean, most of our indeed on the intelligent side, but Scaff is very intelligent. Two, he is passionate. He believes things. I, I talked about the podcast one time, the, the argument Jim and he had all night long. Well, Scaff was passionate in everything he did, you know, or does. I mean, not dead or anything. Uh, and he really, like, he felt things strongly, and he would, you know... He, he, he is a, has red in his personality. He would drive, and, and he, if he felt something, he would really push it. Um, Scaff also was a little eccentric. Uh, the story we often tell is that Scaff had a sleeping bag he kept under his desk, and often nights, instead of going home, he would just sleep under his desk. Um, Scaff was also known for, in R&D, uh, for eating just about anything. Uh, if there were leftovers of any kind, no matter how old, Scaff would often eat them. Um, but anyway, Scaff was very driven. He was very fun. He was playful. Uh, an awesome guy. I like Scaff a lot. Um, but anyway, Scaff was trying to figure out where Magic was going to go. And obviously, in the early days, Magic just kept finding new places because it, it, it came out in very limited release. And originally, it was this hit on the West Coast, then the East Coast, and then, then the rest of the U.S., and then in Europe. And, you know, and like, little by little, it was exploring new markets. And a lot of the growth came from finding new markets that hadn't had magic before. Um, but Scaff realized that that was only going to last for so long that at some point we needed to figure out how to sort of give the game legs. So one of the things to remember about games in general is most games don't actually last that long. I mean, I think when you think about games, you think about the classics, and obviously the classics have lasted a long time, but the average game has a pretty short lifespan. Um, and so Scaff was like, well, how do we extend this? How do we keep people playing? And Scaff realized that a key part of it was organized play. Was because the number one reason people stopped playing Magic, a little trivia question, 
uh, do you guys know, is uh, the social network they play with uh, goes away. Meaning they play with some people and then something changes. They graduate or they move or their friends move or something happens and that social network changes. Because Magic is what we call a core game made for core gamers. What is a core gamer? A core gamer is someone who gaming is a hobby for them. Which means that, you know, everybody has some free time and free money and like, what do they do with it? Some people might go play golf. Some might, you know, collect coins. Gamers game. That's what they do. That is their hobby. Um, And now, games are awesome. There's a lot of positive things. You know, it definitely is very enriching and it's good mentally and does all sorts of positive things. And one of the big things about it is it's a very social thing. Um, But the downside is uh, a lot of games, once you lose your social network, you stop playing the game. And so one of the things that was important is, well, let's create a place for people to be able to play. A, so there is, an, there is always someone for them to play with, and B, that if people want to test themselves, that there is a, a means by which they can. Uh, and we talk about the seven graphics about Spike, you know, and that there, there's a lot of players who really like to prove themselves through the game. And the tournament scene does a very good job of letting you test against the best. Also, by the way, I, I don't know if I talked about this in my, the, the Psychographics uh, podcast, but look, all the Psychographics like to win. The goal of the game is to win. How you win is different, you know, and how often you need to win to be satisfied is different, but everyone has a desire to win. And the nice thing about going to a tournament is you really get to sort of try to try your hardest and, and get tested. And that is something that everybody can enjoy. Now, Scaff did some research, and what he realized is that having a bottom rung organized play is important, but it's part of a larger system. And part of that, he looked at a lot of other sports, was this idea of aspirational play. That I play because there's some goal I have in mind that I one day dream of getting to some level. For example, what sells a lot of basketballs? The NBA. You know, what sells a, a lot of, you know, mitts and baseballs? Uh, you know, Major League Baseball. That there's something to achieve and look up to. Um, and so Scaff's goal was, what if we made a top tier of organized play? What if Magic had a pro tour? Um, and what Scaff did is he did a lot of research. He went and talked to a lot of other com- um, sports, uh, especially smaller sports, that had a circuit. Um, I know he went and talked to beach volleyball. I know he talked to a bunch of different people. And he's trying to learn from them, like, well, you know, what, how do you do this? And how do you set it up? And, and Scaff did a lot of research. And he came to the conclusion that, Look, what would help Magic is to have this aspirational top-level play. So that meant, okay, we needed to create a Pro Tour. Now, what happened was, I started uh, in October of 95. And at that point, they had set up, I think they had rented uh, the Puck Building in New York in early February. Uh, but other than that, they, they knew they were going to do it, but they hadn't really put all the pieces together. And... I recognized this was going on, and I was excited, and I went to Scaff, and I said, hey, you know, I have a background in running tournaments. Um, I would be very interested in being the liaison between R&D, um, and I don't know if a liaison position existed. I don't know. All I know is I convinced Scaff to let me help him, um, and Scaff and I were the two that worked really hard in putting all the, the, build, the pieces to build this together. Like I said, it was Scaff's idea, and Scaff had set it up. Scaff had gotten the hall rented. Um, but I was there early enough that I helped help Scott figure out how to make it happen. So there are a bunch of things we were trying to solve because it's a pretty daunting thing. Okay, we're going to do a pro tour. Well, what does that mean? Well, okay, obviously 
we need to have a series of events. That was understood. But, well, how do you get people there? And how do you jump start the whole thing? Now, the big things we were concerned about, probably the number one reason of, of concern was, well, there, I guess there were two concerns. One was this idea of, is the game as skill-testing as it needs to be? Um, one of our worries was, well, what happens if we get people together and then it's just random every time? And, and like, the, it, instead of showing the game being skill, skill, very skill-intensive, it shows the reverse. That it's like, oh, wow, magic's really random. Um, so to offset that, we said, okay, we need to get the best of the best players here. You know, if we're going to do this, this has to be the cream of the crop. It can't just be whoever's in the, in the vicinity. We want the best magic players in the world. Well, how do we do that? Well, the idea was, okay... Let's figure out who we know are good Magic players. So we looked at all the data we had. At the time, uh, there had been two World Championships so far. Uh, there was the 94 World Championships, uh, where Zach Dolan beat Bertrand Lestray. Um, there was the 95 Championships, where Alexander Blubge meet, uh, beat Mark Hernandez. So we ended up inviting the top two from uh, 94. Mostly because we didn't have, actually, we didn't know a lot beyond the top two. I think we knew the top four. Uh, but we just... The records weren't that great back then, so we didn't know everything. But we invited the top two, uh, and they were some of the celebrities of Magic, because they had obviously, you know, the, the, the finals of the very first uh, Magic World Championship. We invited the top eight of the 95, because um, that got us Henry Stern, it got us Mark Justice, got us, you know, Bloom King Hernandez, got us a bunch of names we knew, that we knew were good players. Um, and then we literally just started figuring out who were the good players, and then the criteria ended up being, like, for example, we knew that... Um, Dave Humphreys was a very good player, and he had won the Ice Age pre-release tournament in Toronto. There was one, one pre-release at the time, uh, not a series yet. Uh, so we're like, we, okay, the winner of uh, the Ice Age pre-release gets invited, because we wanted Dave Humphreys there. So what we did is, we kind of picked and chose our categories to just get the best players there. And then we used our rating system to invite other players, to make sure that other players got invited. Um, and... Uh, Actually, now that I think of it, I think we might have invited just the top two from Worlds, because I think Henry actually got in on a rating invite, now that I think about it. So maybe we invited the top two of each Worlds, but the ratings got in Justice and... Uh, anyway, I'm not sure exactly, but I know we went out of our way to make sure the name players were all there. And everybody was very excited, because Magic at the time had had, I think, some thousand-dollar tournaments. I know Neutral Ground in New York at the time, uh, Grey Matter, was running... Um, thousand-dollar uh, tournaments, and I, I think Boston might have had a few. Um, but anyway, at the time, the first-place prize was $17,000, which is funny. Modern day, it's 40000 so that might seem like not a lot. But at the time, that was a lot of money. The winner gets $17,000, when previously the best you could do is 1000 or you know maybe win you know, some cards that are worth somewhere around that. Um, and so we made a big deal. Uh, the other big worry we had was just how to get it started. You know, like... It's one thing, like, once it's in place, people know to be excited for it, right? Like, once you see something, you're like, wow, I want that. But you have to make it happen first, and that's kind of tricky. So, you know, it's definitely not something... Um, it, it, it's it, it's kind of like building a house of cards where you kind of have to balance certain cards against each other when you start. And there was a lot of us trying to do that. Um, oh, the other interesting thing was, at first we were trying to get a name for it, so the idea we came up with at first was to call it the Black Lotus Pro Tour. Um, I think we liked that name because Black Lotus was the, the marquee card of magic. It had a sense of dignity, a little sense of beauty, um, and, we, and we felt like, oh, it, it has a nice sort of sound to it. Uh, but then, 
Then we learned out that uh, a black lotus in, in Asia has a connotation of drug running. Uh, so we needed something that we could use worldwide. Um, and in the end, we decided, what should we call the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour? How about the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour? It took us a while to come to that realization. Of just, just look, just call it the Pro Tour. Uh, I mean, the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour, obviously. Um, okay, so we get a list of players. Um, how do we get the rest of the people there? Well, PTQs wouldn't get invented yet. In fact, PTQs didn't start till the second Pro Tour, the one for Los Angeles. For New York, if you wanted to go and you weren't one of the elite we invited, how did you get there? The answer is, you called on the phone. Yes, we made an announcement that at a certain time, the first N number of people that called up could sign up to come. Uh, and so a lot of people joked that it was a Pro Tour call-in because uh, in order to get there, you had to call on the phone. Now, as it turns out, the most dedicated people were the ones that were most active about doing it. Uh, and we actually had a pretty turnout um, in the first Pro Tour. Um, and like I said, we were concerned. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch. The funny thing is, if you go back and look at the first Pro Tour, so much about it, like in modern day, because you know, we're 17 years in, seems like almost crazy in some of the stuff that happened. Um, but, I mean, it all came together. It was funny. Oh, so what happened was I talked about how we had a Pro Tour in February in New York. Well, that turned out to be a little, uh, not the greatest choice. So there was this giant blizzard. Giant blizzard shut down the airport. In fact, the very first Pro Tour was delayed. The opening of it was delayed. The first night, we actually had a cocktail party, believe it or not. It's something we don't do anymore. Uh, and then we had to delay the start for the second day because there's this giant blizzard that shut down the city and shut down the airport. Um, but most Magic players luckily had gotten there early and they trudged through the snow. Oh, speaking of which, and there's an awesome image. One of the other quirky things about Scaff is Scaff liked wearing shorts. I don't mean some of the time. I mean pretty much all the time. Scaff loved wearing shorts. So I remember us walking in New York in a blizzard. I mean, like, can't see 10 feet from your face blizzard, and Scaff is walking in shorts. Anyway, a little, a little, a little, a little moment of Scaff. Um, okay, so we had the thing set up. Uh, uh, we got the people there. It's blizzard, but okay, we're going to start. Oh, we also did a junior division, because the idea at the time was... We thought that uh, we were giving away scholarships and the younger players were going to play in their own division. Uh, we, obviously, since we morphed them all together in one kind of giant division. But the funny thing about the juniors is the juniors at that first Pro Tour was a good group of people. I mean, I believe the following people all played in the juniors. Uh, and this is just off the top of my head, so I'm, I'm missing people for sure. Uh, John Finkel was there. Zvi Moshevitz was there. Pat Chapin was there. Bob Marr was there. I mean, a lot of, like, you know, Pro Tour Hall of Famers played in the juniors. Juniors was pretty tough. Also, it, uh, so the format of, of the whole thing was, it was a little tricky. So Homelands was the most recent set to have come out. And so we really wanted some Homeland, Homelands cards to show up because, look, part of the Pro Tour is marketing. I mean, marketing dollars pay for it. And it is, I mean, we do want to test the best. We do want to have aspirations. But another completely different aspect of it is, look, it's a marketing aspect. And so, okay, we wanted to show off the latest set. It was Homelands. Okay, Homelands, not the strongest set. So uh, we created a format that the players called Home Decap, uh, Standard Home Decap, I think. Uh, so anyway, it was standard, but you had to play with five cards from every set legal in the format, which meant you had to have five Homelands cards. Uh, I think there was one other set that was a little bit of a pinch, but the real pinch was the Homelands cards. Uh, some players just played basically with 10-card sideboards. Um, some players found ways. I know Serenity Arrows got played a lot, and 
other people that were creative that found a few a few cards to sneak in. Um, the interesting thing was, by the way, is uh, the, with the cards available, it was possible to make a necro deck, and that summer would become the necro summer when necro would go crazy. Uh, and, and by the way, part of the reason the necro exploded uh, was not just a matter of not quite finding the deck, but also was the fact that black fights hadn't been restricted yet. But anyway, necro deck was legal at the first Pro Tour. So who played a necro deck? Um, in the top eight, uh, Leon uh, Limbach was uh, a Swedish player who played uh, an early version of a necro deck. But the real ne necro deck, the, the good one, um, was actually played by the winner of the juniors, a guy named Graham Tatimer, who had what many consider retroactively to be the best deck of the tournament, um, which was, uh, I mean, it was an early Necro deck, but uh, the more evolved version than Leon's version. Um, anyway, um, so uh, a lot of things that people think of as staples of the Pro Tour didn't actually happen at the first Pro Tour. Uh, for example, let me talk about feature matches, because this is one, my, my baby, the feature matches. So what happened was, at the first Pro Tour and at the second Pro Tour, um, we let people, any spectators who showed up could just walk through and watch people play. You know, just walk through the tables and watch people. Now, later on, we would, you know, keep people from, from being able to do that. But in the early days, you could just walk through. Um, and I realized after the first one, so for the second one, I said, hey, guys, I think there's an opportunity to let people know what, where the cool matches are. Um, I think I'd come up, I think during the first Pro Tour, I'd come up with it, but it, there wasn't a neat system to do it, so I, I would write things, but for the second one, we made a big sign, it actually was called Rosewater's Picks, where I would say, hey, this round, check out Table 88, you know, uh, Mark Justice is playing Hammer Ragnar, you know, and, um, so I would have you, uh, I would point out where to go to see them. So, come the third Pro Tour, we figured out that we didn't want people wandering through. Uh, that's the one in Columbus. So what we did is we created a feature match area where we took them and pulled them. And so the matches you wanted to watch, well, we put them in an area where you could watch them. Now, this was early. Um, I don't think we even covered them in coverage yet, but it was live for the spectators. We started doing them coverage at some point, um, and eventually we put them on camera. Um, also, by the way, uh, they were trying to continue calling it Rosewater's Picks, and I actually was the one that said, I, I, I don't think so. Can, you know, can we call them, how about, how about feature matches? Um, and so, and then what happened was, I actually worked on the Pro Tour for a long time. I was in charge of the feature match area. I was the, the judge in charge of the feature match area for many years. In fact, for eight years, I, I went to every Pro Tour, well, almost every Pro Tour. I, in fact, I had the streak for the longest Pro Tours uh, until I missed one, uh, the New York that Sigurd Esklund won, because my daughter Rachel was born. Um, and then when my twins were born, I had to give up the Pro Tours because I, I couldn't travel as much. But uh, for eight years, I was at just about every Pro Tour. Um, in fact, online, I wrote a two-part article called On Tour, in which I went through the first however many years of the Pro Tour, mostly up to the point where I had I'd been there. Um, and it's a very interesting, like, story by story, looking at each Pro Tour and talking about, you know, the time I had to tell somebody they didn't really make top eight or a bunch of different stories like that. Um, so, anyway, um, so we had the first Pro Tour. It went off surprisingly well for all the chaos. I mean, we didn't quite know what we were doing. Uh, like I said, like, for example, the commentary. So the commentary in the first one was me and two other Wizards employees, another R&D person named Glenn Elliott, and someone from Eric, what was Eric's left name? Eric was in customer service. Um, and we... I'm not sure if, if that commentary is ever seen by anybody other than live. It was pretty sad. 
Um, starting the one after that in um, Los Angeles, what we did is I was doing play-by-play, and I would pull in a player from the event. Uh, Mark Justice actually was the player I pulled in for Los Angeles. Oh, and a funny story, just because it's a funny story. Um, we needed to have a sound booth so that we could do our commentary, and it turned out that um, the only place they could find that was contained was a phone booth. This was aboard the Queen Mary. So it was a big phone booth, but still it was a phone booth. Uh, and the finals between Hammer and um, Tom Gavin, uh, Sean and the Hammer Regnier and Tom Gavin were the finals of PTLA, the first one, um, was so, it was long. I think it was longer than the first one. Oh, by the way, I didn't even talk about that. So we, we had the thing. The event's kind of chaotic. The finals of the first Pro Tour was Michael Lacanto from the United States versus um, uh, our, our finalist from uh, 94, um, Bertrand Lestray from France. And uh, the match took, I don't know, seven hours, I think. I know that Bill Rose went to dinner with friends in New York, came back. He had left during the finals match and came back during the finals match and had gone out to a fancy dinner in, in between. Um, and then the second one, we had Hammer versus Tom, and it was, uh, it was a long match. I know that because I was in a phone booth for the entire thing. Um, but anyway, uh, like, for example, the commentary started to evolve. We started having color and play-by-play and having uh, more experienced people do commentary. Eventually, I got replaced because my play-by-play was not that stellar. I don't know if you ever, if you ever dig up an old tape and watch. The only thing I was good at, by the way, the one thing I was good at, I was not the best color commentator, uh, was when someone won at the end, I would get very excited and I would go, Oh my God, so-and-so, you know, Michael LaCanto is the winner of Pro Tour New York. And if you ever see the ESPN shows, we did a clip where we would recap the season, and it always was me screaming that at the end of the thing when so-and-so would win. It would, you would see them winning on screen and me yelling, oh, so-and-so is the winner! And that was my favorite thing I did. Uh, so, anyway. Um, eventually, we started getting a little more professional uh, commentators in. Um, uh, one of my favorites for a long while, I mean, there's been a lot of awesome commentators. Uh, for a while, I was in charge of doing the video, of producing. Uh, maybe this that maybe this is his own probably it is his own podcast, but that's the whole thing. Anyway, some people are gonna talk about it, about sort of putting together uh both the, the Pro Tour and you know doing ESPN and all that. That that that's a whole bunch of stories unto itself. Also, another thing I'll do a podcast on at some point is we made a video of New York, the first Pro Tour, which is uh if you guys have never heard, uh, we, I did a director's commentary on the video that we did as a feature article once where I talked about this. It is a crazy story, but it is much more I, I need a whole podcast to do justice because it was a, a quite crazy story. Um, so anyway, uh, eventually we, we started finding our heads. Uh, we did PTQs with the second one. Like I said, Feature Master started up with the second one. Grand Prix would start a year later. Um, oh, here's something else that's interesting. Uh, limited play. So the first Pro Tour was constructed, was the, the standard uh, home decapped uh, variant. Uh, the second one was us doing a, a draft. Um, I think what we did is we did limited for the first part, and the second day the cut was draft. And here's the interesting thing at the time. Uh, the European offices did not like draft. The, the European, basically they were convinced it was too luck. There's too much luck in limited play, uh, including draft, uh, ironically. Um, and so they really just did not push limited play in Europe. They didn't play it. You know, and so we came to the Pro Tour, and now the Americans, we had pushed it. So the Americans had played it. I know the Japanese had played it some. Um, and so the cut to day two at Los Angeles was 61 Americans, two Japanese, and a single European player. 
Um, which just goes to show, like, if you don't know the format, you don't know the format. Uh, which, which reinforced our whole point of, hey, it's a skill-intensive format. Um, and the other interesting thing, uh, just looking back, was originally we created two different um, draft formats. There was Booster Draft, and there was something called Rochester Draft. Rochester Draft is where you take the cards, place them all face up, and then players take turns drafting them. And in the early days, our thought was that Rochester Draft was a superior draft because you had a lot more control, you had more knowledge. Where Booster Draft was like, well, you don't know as much what's going on. Um, but what ended up happening was Booster Drafts took off in, in local stores, and Rochester did not. Why is that? Because Booster Drafts are much easier to do and take less time. Where Rochester is a lot slower. Uh, and what we found was people liked booster drafting. And so eventually what happened was we phased out Rochester drafting and booster drafting became the norm. But it's interesting to point out that early on, that like for a long time, we thought Rochester was going to be the norm and booster was just this variant we were trying. Um, and like I said, it's, it is hilarious when you look back at early Pro Tour days that we did a lot of things because we were finding our feet, you know. Um, and, and look, I think the Pro Tour has evolved in, uh, in an awesome thing. And I love the fact that we keep evolving it and improving upon it. You know, like as one of the guys that used to do the coverage, oh my, holy moly, watching the coverage now is amazing. You know, now, I mean, I didn't have the tools back then. No, no live streaming on the internet uh, back in uh, 96 and 97. But um, it just, it's, it is fun to watch. And I, I love, I mean, I was very, very involved in Pro Tour for a long time. And now I'm much more, I get to go visit every once in a while. Usually once a year, I'll, I'll go to a Pro Tour. Um, and to me, it's kind of fun. Uh, I have very nostalgic feelings about it. You know, I remember sitting around with Scaff in the early days, just like spitballing ideas. And it's kind of neat. It's kind of neat to see one of your ideas evolve over so many years. I mean, I definitely have sets where I work on and I watch them change, but they change, and that's a small period of time. They come out and they're done. The Pro Tour is kind of a living, breathing thing, and so it's, it really has been fun seeing it just become better and better. I was very excited about the, the Hall of Fame, which I, I was involved in its creation, but I'm so excited to see it happen. Um, but anyway, I'm now at work. I'm sitting in my uh, in a parking spot. By the way, somehow I talk about my parking spot. People think I have my own parking spot. I do not have my own parking spot. Uh, I park where I can. Um, but anyway, I'm here, and it was fun talking about the Pro Tour today. I hope you all enjoyed uh, the stories, and it looks like it's time to go make the magic cards. <laughs>